0: This message first aired on the radio on July 29th, 2003. We're delighted to be taking up the subject of the dispensation of promise, and in doing so, we consider substantially the life of Abraham. Now, we're going to take up a bit beyond that as time allows and as we go forward, but for now, we're taking up the life of Abraham. And one of the things we realize about Abraham is that he's just a regular fellow. Now, he has some certain exceptional qualities, but as we get to know people, we find that most people have some kind of qualities that are praiseworthy and exceptional. But what we're going to see with Abraham is not only does he have praiseworthy and exceptional qualities, but he's also a character much in the way that we are. He suffers from the same problems we do in many ways, and he's a man of faith. And that's really good news, if you think about it, because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Uh, That's what the Bible says. But the converse of that is also true, and that is, with faith, it is possible to please God. And that's a wonderful consideration when you consider how unpleasing you are to God, uh, naturally speaking, that we're all sinners, that we, from our mother's womb, uh, are born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Not only are we born for trouble, but we cause trouble, and so to see Abraham as a man who by faith pleases God is an encouragement to us indeed. We have traced the life of Abraham so far to the place where God did, has made a promise to him, but has not yet made his covenant with him. Uh, God makes the ever, an everlasting covenant with Abram, and in so doing, it's an unconditional covenant because it doesn't depend on the behavior of Abram which is a good thing, uh, because his behavior, we find from time to time, is unacceptable. So we see this covenant laid out by God in advance, and then we see it confirmed in fact here. uh, Today, as we look through the Scriptures, we'll see it confirmed in fact. But before we turn to that, which we'll see in really the 15th and 17th chapters of Genesis, I want to point out a couple of things that uh, we closed with yesterday and maybe just embellish upon them a little bit or elaborate, let me say, not embellish, but elaborate upon them. And that is that we found that the man of God is useful only when he is separated from the world and he walks by faith and not by sight, and that uh, it is possible to be trained in the house of God to be uh, useful for the purposes of others, including the delivery and securing of the best interests of our brethren. And in that regard, you recall that we remember that when the report came to Abram that his brother, Lot, which would be his spiritual brother, but which would be his relationship-wise, his nephew, that when the report came that he had been taken, Abram, without question, without complaint, organized men trained in his own house and went and rescued Lot. And we likened that to the spiritual man being the only man, the spiritually-minded man, being the only man truly useful to his brethren today. I was reminded of a scripture that we didn't get to uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll just read it today, 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 through 26. This is a set of verses that have been important to me numerous times in my life, and so let me read them to you. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men apt to teach, or able to teach, or skilled to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare or trap of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. And I want to say that this speaks to the condition that lot was in some brethren run to these situations they not only pitch their tent towards sodom like uh, lot did not only walk by sight and not by faith like lot did not only love the world like lot did but also get ensnared and trapped and the next thing you know they're in the slime pits of this world now the slime pits of this world some of them are very attractive looking some of the slime pits Uh, This world has to offer. Many of them cost a huge amount of money, for example. Nevertheless, it is the case that we will find the worldly minded believer, like Lot, being trapped by the devil all the time. And uh, this word snare is an interesting word. It's a trapping term, a snare. Those who trap use snares, Uh, they hide their trap in the place, uh, in a likely place or in an accessible place. And also among the accessible places that they can find where they can actually put their traps, trappers will put them and disguise them so that their prey will, unbeknownst to themselves, fall into their trap. Snare is, uh, I'm told, I'm not a trapper, but I'm told that a snare is often laid for birds on the ground. And it's covered up, and uh, when birds come to the ground to feed, they are then taken by the snare as it's sprung on them. And I found that to be an interesting occasion because, of course, birds don't belong on the ground. Birds are made for the air, and although they have feet to light on the ground, but when they get out of their province and when they get onto the ground, that's when they get into trouble. We have a cat who, when she was young, was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and that cat would, any time the birds would get close where they shouldn't be, uh, within the range of the cat, that cat would knock the bird down, and that was the end of the bird. And I had thought about this scripture then, that so many believers find their way into snares. A friend of mine, maybe you're ensnared. Maybe you've got yourself trapped and you don't think that there's any way out of that. Well, I'm sure maybe Lot had those thoughts as he as he was captured near the slime pits where he lived. But the scripture teaches us that the servant of the Lord, is, if he'll follow the scripture, uh, the servant of the Lord is able to instruct and help those who oppose themselves, who are in the snare. So my friend, if you're in a snare today, first thing you need to realize is that the Bible teaches that you are your own worst enemy, and that's maybe something to think about and realize that uh, your enemies aren't out there somewhere, Uh, there are only three spiritual enemies that we have, the world, the flesh, and the devil and uh, there's not a lot we can do about two of those we can resist the devil and he'll flee from us the world system we can uh, keep ourselves in the world not of we can keep ourselves from being spotted by the world system but really the problem is the flesh really the problem is our desires that's something we can do something about if we've believed on the lord Jesus Christ we can realize and we can think through that we have died with Christ and that we are risen with Christ, and we can therefore consider ourselves dead to sin, alive to God, and begin to admit the truth. Here the Bible says, the servant of the Lord, and here is the spiritual application really of what Abraham did, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all men, apt to teach in meekness, instructing those who are their own worst enemies, those who are opposing themselves those who really are double-souled and who are against themselves. And if God, peradventure, will give them repentance or a change of mind, and let me tell you this, maybe you're a person who believes that you can continue on in a a way that God disapproves, whatever that way is, you know what it is, I don't know, there are so many of those. And in due course of time, uh, you'll just repent from it and you know God will forgive you for what you're doing. And let me just say that you cannot decide to repent. It is God that gives repentance. It is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. And God also gives you repentance, that is the change of mind, so that you will acknowledge the truth. And let me say that recovering yourself out of these snares has to do, first and foremost, with acknowledging the truth. And if you'll do that, you can escape. There is yet grace for you to escape the snare. So we say that about about the condition of Lot. And there was Abraham there to deliver him, and there's a servant of the Lord available to help deliver you from the snare that you may find yourself in today. Now, that being said, we want to go on as we've seen Abram as a great warrior. We've seen him called. We've seen him separated from the world. We've seen him as a great warrior, And now we see the Lord coming, the word of the Lord coming to Abram in Genesis 15. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision this time, and Abram had a vision, obviously, and the Lord said to him, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Or maybe literally we could read it this way, I have been thy shield, I will be thy great reward. And so here is a wonderful disclosure to Abram about God, that he is both our defense and he's our rewarder. Remember that they that come to God must believe that he is. Well, when you believe that he is, you have to understand what he, some of what he is like. He is the greater. He is the defender. He is our defender. He's our defense. And here he is also the exceeding great reward. We must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder. But he himself is Abram's reward, and Abram said to him, Lord God, or in other words, God Almighty, who makes a covenant with me, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? Now, he says that because, well, it just goes on, and behold, to me thou hast given me no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir." Now Abram calls on God about his promise, the land that he promised him back in chapter 13, he would give to his seed forever. And Abram's reminding God, look, it requires a seed. The way the heirship of my household lines up right now, my senior householder, the head steward in my house, is Eliezer of Damascus. And if I don't have a son, uh, seeing how I'm childless, and I don't have a son, his son is my heir, because he's the senior man in my household. And that is the way that the law work that Abraham had learned to adopt and use in his life. Uh, It wasn't the laws written by God, but it was the law out of the culture of Chaldee, where he was called. And don't you worry about whether it applied here, because it doesn't. God is faithful. Behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, verse 4 of Genesis chapter 15, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And God said unto Abram, So shall thy seed be. And Abram believed in the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him for righteousness, And, of course, that's that wonderful statement around which the book of Romans is written, and also a statement around which the book of Galatians, in part, is directed. Abram believed in the Lord, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. That is, the faith in God's Word was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, I'll pause a little bit on that in just a moment, but I found it interesting this week as we read about God telling Abram to look toward heaven and tell the stars, see if you can count them or number them. I heard on the news this week, uh, a radio report, scientists believe now that there are a sextillion stars. That would be a trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, sextillion stars. Well, one sextillion. Uh, those of you that know a little bit about uh, the way that we use numbers in science, That's still only one significant digit. Uh, They're rounding off all the rest of those zeros, and that's 12, 15, 18, 21 zeros. That's a lot of zeros to be rounding off. They have one significant digit, but they've come to, they think, well, there's there's a sextillion of them. I say, well, boys, keep counting. God said to Abram, see if you can count them. You can do some arithmetic, but I assure you that there's not enough human history to count those stars. And now Abram believed in the Lord, and the Lord counted it or imputed righteousness to Abraham because of his faith. Now this is actually the place of Abram's righteousness, and if you have to We're going to find out, again, that Abram is not a righteous man in his deeds, but righteousness is imputed to him due to his faith. If you have nothing else to learn from this whole hour of preaching today, uh, learn once for all that Abram, before there was ever a law, before God wrote the law of Moses, Abram believed in the Lord, and that faith in God's Word was imputed to him for righteousness. And remember this, that... The promise of God to Abram, the word of God to Abraham, cannot be overturned by a law that is written 430 years later, well after Abraham is dead. And that is a nutshell argument of the book of Galatians. And God said to Abram in verse 7 of Genesis 15, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it, and he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Now, it's interesting here, because there are two aspects to what God is promising Abram. He's promising an inheritance of property, and he's promising a prodigious progeny. And his progeny is not only going to be Israel. It's just going to be a very, very many people. That's all that Abram knows at this point. Well we're looking at the promises to Abram, and the promises are not merely land but also people and Abram's asking God to give him some kind of a significator some kind of a sign or a, some kind uh, to do something that will assure him that he will inherit this land so we have a great number of people that are promised to Abram through his seed, and we have a large area of land, a big territory that's promised to him. Both uh, God taking upon himself to promise this to Abram. And God says to Abram in verse 9, Take a heifer of three years old, a she-goat of three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. He took all of these, divided them in the middle, laid each piece against one another, but the birds he divided not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So here, God is going to show Abram by bringing fire from heaven and by really bringing a very clear sign to him. He'll have a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that pass through these uh, sacrificed animals. Of course, God always coming to man by way of sacrifice and blood sacrifice of that, indicating the finished sacrificial work of our Lord Jesus Christ as a picture. So Uh, And of course, here we have these birds of the air, which you know by now, or we hope you know by now, coming from the air, dwelling place, uh, the place where the prince of the power of the air rules, that these are indicative of demon activity, trying to destroy here the covenant with Abram. And let me say that, uh, of course, Satan's enmity is against God's program with Abram, because it is this program that God has through which he brings the Savior, through which he brings Israel, through which he brings all the promises that we so enjoy as they are fulfilled, and even that we enjoy in advance of their fulfillment as we know how sure they are. And so, Abram, here's a man of faith driving away the fowls of the air who would destroy the way of faith. And let me just remind you, if you're a servant of the Lord and you happen to be listening, that it is part of your work to drive away uh, the fowls of the air from the promises of God. It is not your work to so grow up uh, your organization so that the fowls of the air can perch in it and teach uh, under your watch. Now the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Verse 12, Lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs or a stranger in a strange land, you might say, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with a great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in a good old age. Abram does go on to live to be 175 years old. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full." Now that's quite a lot that God says, but let's just consolidate it to a couple of clear points. First of all, as Abram had prepared the sacrifice, a deep sleep fell upon him, and now God not speaking to Abram in a vision, but speaking to him obviously in a dream, or at least while he slept, and he explains to him the future of Israel, and the future of Israel, of his seed through Israel, thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that's not theirs, and shall serve them, And they shall afflict them four hundred years now that is what's going to happen to israel they'll be in egypt four hundred and thirty years four hundred of those years they'll be afflicted by the egyptians as the assyrians come in and take over egypt there will arise a king in egypt who knows not joseph and they'll afflict israel in egypt And four generations later, they'll come out again. And the reason for this delay of time, the reason for this 430 years, is because God is still being merciful to the Amorites that are in the land. And he uses the term Amorite here to represent all those ites that are in the land. It says their iniquity is not yet full. Now, they were pretty wicked people the uh, Canaanite nations, were, who are the Amorites, these Canaanite nations are going to become much more wicked than they already are. And I'll tell you this, as long as you're hearing such words as, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, as long as you're hearing the Word of God, for example, preached on the radio and available to you in your local church, and you have the liberty to pick up a Bible and read it, let me tell you, that means that the grace of God is still available, despite the great iniquity of man. Some people ask, why does God put up with all the wickedness that we see all around us? As men become more and more wicked, why does God put up with it all? God puts up with it all because he's so gracious and he's so merciful that he does not want any to perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. Let me tell you, it's the long-suffering of God that is salvation to us, and he's just not like us. He just doesn't get fed up As fast as we do and isn't that good news so here he says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete I'll give them another 430 years so verse 17 it came to pass when the Sun went down it was dark a smoking furnace a burning lamp passed between those pieces that is the pieces of the sacrifice in the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river the river Euphrates The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, Perizzites, and Rephaims, those are those uh, offspring of the fallen ones, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So all of the land that those nations, then existing, held was going to be given to the seed of Abram. And that is quite a large territory. The only question here, really, that I think people should be discussing is this river of Egypt, is that the Red Sea or is that the Nile? I think probably it's the Red Sea, but if it's the Nile, then even Cairo, Egypt, I believe, is part of the land Uh, that God is given to Abram's seed, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to say something, uh, because he's Abram's seed, and I want to say something about that land, which is all the discussion, and it has been for about 35 years now, certainly in my understanding, in my life, and I was born in the early 50s, about as early in the 50s as you can get, since my attention was drawn to Israel in the 1967 war, in the Six-Day War, And that became a very prominent matter in my mind. So since that time which is over 36 years. Israel has been, the the land of Israel, which greatly was uh, enlarged at that time, although it's shrunk down since, the land of Israel has been a great contention in the world. I read just yesterday that President Bush had to say something to Sharon about peace in Israel, and the amazing thing to me is that Israel continually comes forward with plans to trade God's land for peace. And let me tell you something, Israel cannot trade the land that is God's. I don't care what the government thinks, I don't care what the people think, I don't care what their majority is, that land is not theirs. It's God's. And he's given it to the Israel of God. And he hasn't given it to Israel in unbelief, he's given it to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the seed of Abram. But now let me tell you, my Christian friend, the Lord Jesus Christ is not a Christian. He's a Jew, and that land is for Israel, in blessing, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And there's just not going to be any two ways about it. God will do whatever it takes, and he has it planned. He will do whatever it takes. We can even put it this way, he has done whatever it takes to make sure that that will happen. So here Abram now understands that he's going to have a vast territory, that his seed will inherit a vast territory. He also understands that his seed will be a prodigious number of people. That being said, I'm sure he goes home and tells his wife all about the wonderful blessing that God has assured him, and now we see Abram and Sarai just like us. And here here we're going to find Abram with the same kind of problem that I have and that you have if you're a married man. Here it says in Genesis 16, verse 1, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. Now this appears to be something else that Sarah picked up when Abram took her down to Egypt, and that was Hagar. Hagar is the handmaid, here it says, in Genesis 16, verse 1, a handmaid. In the New Testament, she's called a bondwoman, but she's a handmaid, an Egyptian, and she is Sarah's right-hand woman. When you consider that the household of Abraham was 318 adult men, plus children, plus women, you can imagine the needs that his helper, Sarai, had to manage. So certainly she needs help. Now, she has this good idea, and it's a legal idea. She realizes somehow, maybe she had a lawyer help her or somebody else who is familiar with the Code of Hammurabi, which seems like Abram was quite familiar with also. She realizes that if if she has no child, her handmaid's child is her child. Now, that's the proper way to understand this. And I also want to say that we are not to take this as sexual immorality on the part of Abram or on the part of Sarai, despite what people may tell you about these kind of goings-on. Certainly we know better. Certainly in faith of the Scriptures, as we have them, we know that monogamy is God's plan from the beginning, and it is also his plan for us. But this is now a bad idea as Sarai and Abram go to work to bring about the promise of God. Now, God never told Abram that he had to do anything to bring about his promise. He didn't tell him to do this. Abram now is no longer a man of faith, listening to the word of God. He hasn't become a man of sight, or uh, like uh, Lot, but he's become what I'll call a regular husband. Here's a regular husband. Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now the Lord has restrained me from bearing. Now that's what she says. The Lord of course it is the Lord that opens the womb and that closes the womb. But here's the question is Abram going to believe God or Now she says, I pray thee go in unto my maid, it may be that I may obtain children by her. Well, that's plausible. There's nothing implausible about her statement. It's consistent with the Legal code of the day, Abram understands it, yes, if his wife offers the handmaid to him, he can have her, and her offspring will be Sarai's offspring as she is childless. That is a proper thing here, uh, legally, not proper in the sight of God, because God didn't tell him to do this, but it's his wife's good idea. That's what I want to get to. This is his wife's good idea. Now, brother, let me tell you, God made you... To rule in your home and to hear god's voice, and whenever we see in the scripture a man listening to his wife's voice instead of God's voice, there's nothing but trouble and i, I want to now speak from my own experience, not with my own wife, so much although it's I have the same problems as anybody else does, but from my experience in being among Christians for nearly 30 years, and dealing with them intimately on occasions, and knowing families, that it is most of the time that men will listen to their wives instead of God. Now, I know this is probably an insensitive thing to do, and I'm probably out of touch with my feminine side here, but let me tell you, men, God wants you to rule in your home, and as you do it well, to guide in the church. He does not want you to guide in your home, nor does he want you to rule in the church. And God made man to hear his voice. The woman is a weaker vessel. She's not a worse vessel. She's certainly not a better vessel. She's a weaker vessel. Weaker vessels are made for different purposes than strong vessels. You're the strong. As a weaker vessel, she is more easily deceived. The scripture teaches that. He did not make the man for the woman. He made the woman for the man. And man, he made you to hear his voice and not your wife's voice. And one of the troubles that we have today is that we fall prey to the troubles of marriage. And the trouble of marriage is this. The man now, from the time he gets married, actually maybe from the time he gets engaged, he's busy trying to please his wife instead of God. It isn't the case that you always must either choose between God or your wife. But it will happen. It does happen. You're going to have to choose between what your wife wants and what God wants. And man, God told you to choose him. And so he gets in trouble. It says, Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. Now there's a time here when Abram listens to her, and he gets in trouble, and later he doesn't want to hear her anymore, and God has to come in and tell him to listen to his wife. So, brother, do you want to know when it's time to listen to your wife? It's when God tells you to listen to your wife. I'm in the confines of a radio station, and I'm not going to give the address, and I feel very secure here at this moment. Verse 3, Genesis 16, and Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar her maid the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she despised her mistress in her eyes. And Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee." Now here's an amazing thing. Abram followed his wife's advice, he did what she suggested, and then when Hagar conceived a child, she looked down on Sarai because she now had uh, what Abram must have thought was his heir, and Sarah didn't. We're going to look at that big problem in just a minute. Well, I was taught by a missionary from the China Inland Mission who was chased out of China during the Communist purge. Actually, he was in Tibet, connected with the China Inland Mission, a brother named Dan Smith, uh, now home with the Lord. And he was pushed out of China when the purges came, Or out of Tibet. He also was associated with uh, Watchman Nee of China, a wonderful Chinese brother who started many churches. And he sat with me one day, and he was drawing Chinese character, and he said, you want to see the symbol? the Chinese word strife? He showed me that he evangelized the Chinese people by using some of their own words At out of antiquity. Of course, we know the gospel has gone through the stars, went to every nation, and so out of antiquity, a certain amount of truth that was embedded therein it came down to the Chinese. The Chinese word for strife, he told me, was a house with two women in it. Well, I can't draw the picture, I don't remember what it looks like, but here's what I do remember. Two women in a house, that's a lot of strife, and that's what Abram has. And now here's this woman. Sarai offered this woman to Abram. She conceived, had the child. The child stands to be the heir, and there's trouble between the two women, so much trouble that Sarah says, the Lord judged between the two of us, and she went after Hagar, and she went after her legally, but she it says in verse 6, she dealt harshly with her and she, Hagar, fled from the face of Sarah. Now, those who study the Bible even a bit realize that Hagar uh, had her son, Ishmael, and that Ishmael is the progenitor of many of the Arab nations that despise Israel. But let me tell you, friends, the enmity that is in the world through lust is in all of us. Sure, there's a special tribal enmity that has persisted through all this time between the Ishmaelites and the Israelites, and that enmity only goes away when the middle wall of partition that divides them is broken down in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Prince of Peace, and this enmity that is there cannot be negotiated. You see, it started out with a lot of trouble. It ends up with a lot of trouble. But uh, God is not stopped or prohibited, and His grace is not prevented by the tribal inheritances that we have. I have my own tribal background, done a little research into it. Generally, I'm a Japhethite, but I'm also part Hamite, I understand. And no matter, in Christ, who knows, I might be some kind of human mutt and be Shemite, Japhethite, and Hamite, all balled up, no matter. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ died for every single one of us. And But we do have this bitter trouble Uh, that's uh, born between fighting between two women all started because men tried to perform the promises of God and engineer them in their own ways. And let me tell you, there's no lack of that attempt going on today, as men continually try to tinker and engage in unbiblical ways, in wrong ways, listening to wrong ideas, to tinker and accomplish that which God will accomplish only according to his own program and to his own word. And so Abram now has this problem. And we have a moment here, and you can see it in Genesis 16 if you want, where God speaks kindly to Hagar, and the Lord speaks kindly about Ishmael. And he does predict this future for Ishmael, that he'll be a wild man, and his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. But let me tell you, God has a wonderful plan also for Ishmaelites. God has a wonderful plan for Egyptians. God has a wonderful plan for everyone in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so now Abram is 86 years old, and he's got Ishmael born to him, and he's got this big problem on his hands. And 13 years later, when Abraham is 99 years old, we come to Genesis chapter 17, where God again comes and speaks to Abram. And he says, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect, or grow up, Abram, and walk before me. Or continue, really, really, literally. He's saying, continue to walk before me, and Abram fell on his face, and God spoke with him, saying, "As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Many nations. Neither shall thou, in thy name, be any more be Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee." And that's what Abraham means. It means. Instead of just being an exalted father, which is what Abram means, it is Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And let me assure you that out of Abram's progeny, this has all already been true in the world. And then he says in verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Now, that means that the Abrahamic covenant went to Abraham, and he held it until it went to Isaac, and he held it until it went to Jacob, who became Israel, and out of Israel came 12 sons, including Levi. And then out of Levi came Moses, for example, and that's the fourth generation down when Israel is uh, delivered from the Egyptians. And God preserved that promise as it went through Judah. The promised line came through the tribe of Judah, and it came down to David, who was of the tribe of Judah, and it came through the house of David. And then that promise went through David's sons, both of them, through Solomon and through Nathan and you can follow that exact genealogical line through kingly line through the book of matthew the natural line through the book of luke and you can see that the lord jesus christ was truly as it says in matthew chapter 1 verse 1 the son of abraham the son of david and once that promise came to the seed as of one the lord jesus christ that promise to abram renamed abraham was fulfilled And friend of mine, the wonderful thing about the Abrahamic covenant is that God secured it finally between himself and himself. And that way it is so secure, no one, it safely arrived in the safest hands that there are. The Lord Jesus Christ said, no one is able to take them out of my Father's hand, and the Father's hand is also the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you are in him, you are in the hand where no one can snatch you out. And that is where this everlasting covenant got to. And it does not need to be renewed with you, it doesn't need to be renewed with anybody anymore, because it went to that man who went to the cross and who rose out from the dead and ever lives to make intercession for us. And so this covenant that God made between me and thee and thy seed after thee, for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee, verse 8, I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Let me tell you that God promised that land not to seeds as of many. He promised that inheritance not to seeds as of many, but to a seed singular, one seed, that is the seed of the woman promised to Adam and Eve, who will have his heel crushed but will crush the head of the serpent and God said unto Abraham thou shalt keep my covenant therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee and then he gives him the sign of that covenant and let me tell you the sign of the covenant does not need to be reproduced anymore because as I say the covenant is completed it was delivered to the seed Whoever lives now. And so God gave the sign of the covenant, of the everlasting covenant that He made with Abraham, and that is the sign of circumcision. There are people today that believe that circumcision is necessary to be the people of God. That's not true. As a matter of fact, how sad would it be, ladies, if circumcision was required to be the people of God today? God has a better plan than circumcision. God has a better plan than A covenant relationship with you. God has secured his everlasting covenant with Abraham by delivering it to the one to whom it was intended, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the blood of the covenant that God, the new covenant that God made with the new Israel, with the future Israel, is now available to you and to me as we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and come under his saving blood. And so, Now God gives to Abram circumcision, and this is the sign that Israel keeps. And then God says to Abram, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And so her name now is also changed. She has a letter added to her name, and instead of being just Prince Lee, she is now Princess, and God certifies to Abraham that his promise is not going to be through Hagar and to Israel, but it's going to come through Sarah. And I will bless her, he says, and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that's a hundred years old, and shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear So here you see Abraham laughing. Of course, it is a funny thing to think that God is going to bring a son to a 100-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife. That is hysterical. Uh, God does have a sense of humor. But Abraham here laughs, but he's also laughing in unbelief, because he says, Abraham said unto God, O that Ishmael might live before thee. And God repeats himself and says, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed, Thou shalt call his name Laughter, or Isaac, and I will multiply him exceedingly, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. As for Ishmael I have heard thee, I will bless him, and make him fruitful, and multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant is with Isaac, and I will establish it, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this time, next year, and he left off talking with Abraham. And let me tell you, friends, this is now the big controversy of the Middle East. The controversy is this. Ishmael was born 14 years before Isaac. Shouldn't he be the heir? God says, no, he's not the heir. The heir of Abraham comes through Sarah and goes through Isaac, despite the fact that he's younger. The whole question is settled by this. Do we believe the word of God or not? And Israel finds itself in the very precarious situation many times of denying the literal interpretation and understanding of the, let me put it this way, the plain interpretation and understanding of the Bible where God said that the promise comes through Isaac and not through Ishmael. And the only reason that that's the way it is is because God says so. A friend of mine, the reason that men will never sort out the problems of the Middle East is because men will not accept God's Word, and the Lord Jesus Christ will have to come himself and complete this promise and make this all work out, and he'll have to do it himself. That's why I have no confidence in any peace processes, despite whatever sentiments men may have. God's Word makes it very clear that the Lord Jesus Christ is the heir, and he's the one that will get this all done. Well, Abraham shows that he's, despite the fact that he doubted God in the birth of Isaac, he still takes the sign of the covenant of circumcision and uh, tells us in, uh, and this is painful, Genesis 17, verse 24 Abraham was 90 years old and 9. That is, he was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the self same day was Abraham circumcised and Ishmael his son and all the men of his house, born in his house, bought with money of the stranger, were all circumcised with him. And so God now has this sign of his agreement with Abraham, and the certainty of it is sure. Now, some say, well, God has a similar sign to the Christians insofar as how do we know that we have eternal life? And there are those who would erroneously say, well, we are baptized in the place of circumcision. Let me point out to you that baptism does not answer in any way to circumcision. That is not what God gives us to certify to us that we have eternal life. What God gives us to certify to us that we have eternal life is he gives us a whole new nature. He gives us an earnest of our inheritance. Well, we'll take up the rest of this dispensation tomorrow. May God bless you.